0: For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We're reading uh, this morning 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18-22, through 22, and it's Resurrection Sunday. So welcome to the meeting of Harbor Bible Church today on Resurre- Resurrection Sunday. Paul, the Apostle Paul, said that Christianity uh, is based on, stands or falls, on whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. And Paul met the resurrected Christ on the way to Damascus. Peter, the writer of this epistle, it's my understanding he was the first of the apostles to witness the resurrected Jesus. The resurrection is God's demonstration that we have a hope. So the resurrection of Jesus is God's demonstration that we have a hope that's not based on our wishful thinking, but on God's promises. God's promise that we will be resurrected also, those of us who have put our trust in Jesus. Last week, we were also in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, and one of the things we saw in that text was that we should always be ready to give a reason for that hope, that hope that's within us. We also saw in chapter 3, verse 17, that it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for evil, than for doing evil. So it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And in our text today, we see that Jesus is our example. This principle of being willing to suffer for what's right is illustrated by Jesus himself. So Christ's suffering for our sins is our example for trusting in God in the midst of suffering. And it's much, you know, Jesus' death on the cross is much more than just an example. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for sure, Jesus is our example for trusting God in the midst of suffering as we look to the hope that's set before us. So, we identify with the sufferings of Jesus. We should also identify with the sufferings of Christians in time past and the sufferings of Christians all over the world today, even if we have an easy life right now, still, together, we trust God in the midst of suffering. That's our calling. Verse 18 of the text we're looking at this morning says, For Christ also suffered. And it goes on to say that He might bring us to God. Earlier in 1 Peter We read in chapter 2, verse 25, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would humble our hearts this morning. Lord, please draw us near to you, And we pray that you would bear fruit in our lives from reading the Bible together today. Thank you for everyone here, Lord. And we pray that you would bless everyone that's gathered with us today and those who couldn't be with us today. And Lord, I pray that you would bless and protect gatherings of your people all over the world today. I mean, Gig Harbor, Kitsap County, Pierce, and Cain. Lord, we pray uh, for our brothers and sisters, wherever they are, Lord. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Let's read 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So this section is saying It's telling us that Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. And it says Jesus was resurrected by the Holy Spirit. Verse 22 says that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. These are the central events of history. The central events of world history, everything that has happened, everything that happened before these events were simply leading up to these central events. They were done with these central events in mind. And everything that came after these events have simply served to complete the purposes of these events. So all of history has been about man rebelling against God and God reaching out with patience and offers of mercy and redemption that He might bring us to God. God created us for a love relationship with Him, and the intent was that that love relationship with Him would glorify Him. That is, that all observers, because of our love relationship with God, all observers of this love relationship would look at that and have to say that is good God is good and his plan is good and since you can't love a robot you can program a robot to say I love you but that's not really a love relationship since you can't love a robot God gave us the ability to choose to reject him we were created in God's image Adam and Eve chose to reject God, and ever since, mankind has been in rebellion against God. But God already had a plan, before he even created the universe, he already knew, and he already had a plan, that one day he himself would become one of us and allow us to nail him to a cross, and he would come to redeem us, to save us, from our own rebellion, that he might bring us to God. Look at verse 18 of First Peter <coughs> chapter 3. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So when this is saying that Christ suffered, it's referring to Jesus died on the cross, the crucifixion. Jesus was betrayed by Jewish leaders and he was executed by the authority of Rome. Once for sins. So he suffered once for sins. It is finished. So no more bulls or goats, which was just a shadow of what was to come. No more bulls or goats. And today there should be no Catholic Eucharist which is an ongoing sacrifice of the Mass. It is finished. Christ suffered once for sins. And let me read for you Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, starting with verse 24, so Hebrews 9. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So Jesus died, the just for the unjust. So Jesus, holy and perf- holy and perfect, died for us, sinful and rebellious. Jesus was the shepherd, that went to rescue the sheep who had gone astray. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is substitutionary atonement. A miraculous redemption. So this is one of the ways we refer to what Jesus did for us on the cross—that the word atonement. And there are many umbilical teachings about the atonement. There's the new age mystical atonement with creation. And there are some professing Christians who have taught that Jesus was just a moral example. He certainly was an example, but he's much more than that. And they teach he was just a moral example. Related to this, there, there are those who teach that the crucifixion was simply necessary for God's moral government. This is what's called moral government theology. There's some who teach the satisfaction theory, the satisfaction of a debt. And for sure, there is some sense in which Jesus did satisfy a debt. But but there are those historically who have taught that it's as if God was somehow accountable to some cosmic law above him that he then had to satisfy. And, and I, I remember talking to a, a supervisor many years ago about Jesus, and he said, "Well, show. I want to meet the guy who required him to satisfy the debt. You know, he. In other words, if he had to satisfy this debt, well, I want to. I want to talk to the guy who made that rule. And so, so sometimes these things can be spoken as as if God was accountable to anything or anybody, which he's not. But it's his character, and. Also related to this is a teaching that somehow God had to ransom us back from the devil, which is not biblical. But the biblical view of the atonement, it has to do with the plan of an infinite God. It has to do with a human need that we were hopelessness in our sin. And so we have God's holy righteousness Is the wrath of a righteous judge on the one hand, and we have God's gift, the grace of God, on the other hand, and all of this represents God's manifold wisdom. And it is good that all observers can see and one day acknowledge the manifold wisdom of God in all of this so the atonement there's much that was accomplished by God in Jesus' death on the cross what we call the the atonement and I want to talk about some of these things and just refer to them first of all it's portrayed to us the atonement is portrayed to us as something that's been accomplished and it's complete it's eternally effectual once for all, and as I referred to before, it's substitutionary, referring to Jesus taking our place, his sacrificial death on the cross. The atonement is about redemption. So God's plan of redemption from before the foundations of the world, and, and in some sense, it involves paying a debt, satisfying a debt, A ransom to set us free? The atonement is about reconciliation. To bring us to God. We were once enemies of God. And the atonement makes that way for us to be reconciled with God. The atonement involves propitiation. Which involves an expiatory concept of freeing us from the punishment of sin propitiation involves the act by by which the holy wrath of God is brought against sin while the love of God is brought towards sinful men propitiation the atonement was necessary for human salvation. Again, we were enemies of God, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And Jesus died for all. Salvation is available to all and represents our justification before God. The atonement is the actual objective ground for forgiveness of sins and our acceptance with God. For all who believe, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And in this is that imputation of righteousness. God imputes upon us His righteousness. The atonement provides for the judgment of our sin nature and it's the end of the mosaic law remember no more bulls no more goats it's the end of the mosaic law recall that the veil was ripped in two so it's not only it's not the priest the high priest once a year goes in there but we all can enter that holy of holies in that personal relationship with Jesus the atonement is the ground for Christian cleansing from sin. And like, it, it refers to, like, uh, for example, I think of 1 John 1, 9, that the atonement is the enabling of a good conscience towards God, so that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. The atonement is the basis for the removal of pre cross sins. The Old Testament believers were looking forward to the cross and we look back to the cross. The atonement is the basis for the judgment of Satan and his demons. And all of this is that he might bring us to God. Jesus died on the cross and he was resurrected by the Spirit of God, this text says, so being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it says that Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses. He died on the cross for our sins and he was raised for our justification. He was raised... To show the world, to demonstrate to the world that we were justified before God. And so the resurrection serves to justify us before men and all observers. That God has accepted (coughs) Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. So it's Resurrection Sunday. Um, In our society and in places all over the world for centuries... It's a day set aside by many to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection is objective evidence for the existence and the plan of the God of the Bible. It's a historic fact that we can look to in history. There were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And many of them went to their death because they knew what they saw. They were willing to go to their death because they knew what they saw. And these eyewitness accounts were documented in the Bible. And their eyewitness accounts were endorsed by the Holy Spirit, the writer of the Bible. And this is in the context of the history of the Jewish people. There is, there is no people like the Jewish people, there, there's, and, and the existence and the continuance of the Jewish people is itself objective evidence for the God of the Bible. Along with the 66 books of the Bible, which chronicles the history of the Jewish people, a lot of times skeptics will accuse Christians of circular reasoning, they'll say, well, You're saying you believe in the resurrection because of the Bible and that you believe in the Bible because of the resurrection or that kind of thing they'll accuse us of. of. But the important thing to realize is that the Bible is not just one book. The Bible is 66 books written over a 1,500-year period. And prophecies in early books, their fulfillment are documented in later books. And there's no set of books like the Bible in all of history the cohesiveness, the coherence, uh, the miraculous nature of God telling us what's going to happen before it happens and then it happens just like God said it would. Look at verse 19 of 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, By whom, speaking of Jesus, by whom the Spirit, that is, uh, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, so this same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus up by this same spirit, Jesus preached to the spirits in prison. And there are three questions that come up about this that in general. Number one, who were these spirits in prison? Number two, when did Jesus preach to them? And number three, what did Jesus say to them? Let's look at the next verse, which relates. Verse 20, speaking of these spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight souls were saved through water so the spirits in prison are those who were formerly disobedient in the days of noah who were these spirits in prison well there are two evangelical views in general that that are that are possible there's a lot of unbiblical theories and Uh, about things and related topics, but as far as I can see among legitimate evangelical believers, uh, there's two general views. Number one is that that these spirits who are now in prison were of the rebellious humans in the time of Noah. They're spirits now in prison. That is at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. The second view is that these spirits in prison are the demons who had relations with women prior to the flood. Described in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And um, a few months ago Greg Coots in our Adult Sunday School did a great presentation and he and uh, Greg was of the view of uh, the, the second view that I'll talk about a little bit more, both of these. And there's people I respect on both sides of this. Uh, and, um, and I'm still not convinced, but I'm eager to search the scriptures and I want to understand these things. Um, so the second question is, when did Jesus preach to them? When did, when did Jesus preach to these spirits? And uh, the first view would be Jesus spoke by the Spirit through Noah to the rebellious humans in the time of Noah. So the, so the first view is Jesus by the Spirit speaking through Noah to the rebellious humans in the time of Noah. The second view says that, it's that between the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus descended into Hades, to speak to some or all of the spirits in prison including the demons who had relations with women prior to the flood and, and of course it's, that's even debatable actually about the idea of demons having relations with women but that's another another issue uh, now the third question is, what did Jesus say to them? Well, if it was Jesus speaking by the Spirit through Noah to rebellious humans, then it's possible that second Peter chapter two verse five relates, where it says referring to God, it says, "And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness." bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So so that would indicate that when Jesus preached to the rebellious people in the time of Noah through Noah he was pre- preaching a message of righteousness, a right relationship with God in some sense. So Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now, if it was the if it's the second view, so if this is referring to between the crucifixion and the resurrection and Jesus speaking to the demons who had relations with women prior to the flood, then we can know that it was not the gospel he was preaching because there is no second chance. We already saw in in, uh, Hebrews that it's appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment, so there is no second chance after death. So what would Jesus be preaching to the spirits in prison? Well, uh, many in this view would say that it was a proclamation of victory. Because God wants to demonstrate his manifold wisdom to good angels because they are amazed at what the grace of God is doing in people. And he wants to demonstrate the truth to Satan and his demons. Just like in Job, where God demonstrated to Satan... No, you're the liar. You're the one that lacks integrity. Job doesn't just love me because of what he gets off me. Job is going to love me no matter what happens. And this is, is my grace, is, is, is effectively what's going on there. And how, recall in Ephesians three ten and 11, that God is demonstrating his manifold wisdom through us, the church, according to his eternal purposes in Jesus Christ, to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. So when God brought together Jew and Gentile into one new man, the church, God is demonstrating his manifold wisdom to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, angels and demons. God wants all observers to acknowledge or one day be forced to acknowledge that God's plan is good and righteous. And regardless of which of these two views are uh, are correct about the spirits in prison, and I think it's important to to examine any part of scripture. Uh, but but either way, this section is emphasizing the long suffering of God. The long suffering of God, because when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through the water. Again, this divine long-suffering is related to God demonstrating his manifold wisdom to all observers. And this involves his patience, his offering reconciliation to humans, demonstrating to all, both rebellious and repentant, that God's plan is good, righteous, and results in a true love relationship for those who come to God on his terms rather than insisting on their own terms. Let's look at verse 21, 1 Peter chapter 3. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So eight souls were saved through the water. They weren't saved by the water. They were saved through the water. And Peter is telling us that this is a foreshadowing of water baptism. And it's not an outward washing. It's not something outward. It's something that's inward. It's representing a good conscience toward God. An outward sign of repentance. And remember this a good conscience toward God was enabled by the atonement. And so, in baptism, we identify with the death of Jesus. And the Greek word uh, in this verse is "antitupon," where we get our word antitype from, that means representative, like, a figure, and so in the Bible, we have types and antitypes. So in the Old Testament, for example, Peter is telling us that the ark was a type pointing to water baptism in the New Testament, the antitype. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing, the types, the antitypes, the foreshadowings, the metaphors that are interwoven throughout the Bible. I I continue, the longer I'm a Christian, the longer I study the Bible, the more amazed I am by the interwovenness from Genesis through Revelation. And when it comes to baptism, water baptism, they were saved through the water, not by the water. Water baptism doesn't save us. It's a matter of obedience. And so I would encourage anybody here who's, Trusted in Jesus. If you've never been baptized, I recommend that you be baptized. I've I've had uh, friends and acquaintances uh, in the Church of Christ. The Church of Christ is a non-denominational denomination, and it and it uh, w- one thing that's distinctive about them, unfortunately, is they say that water baptism water baptism is required for salvation. And I've had to, say to friends and acquaintances that you and I are preaching a different gospel we can't both be right the Bible says salvation is by grace through faith and not of works and they're saying that baptism is a work that's required for salvation even though they have their own apologetic about that and and some may some may say well isn't that splitting hairs? And, um, and I would say we've got to take seriously what it means to come to God on his terms and not insisting on our own way. And, and, and the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, if, if we or an angel from heaven should come to you preaching a different gospel than the one you've received, let him be eternally condemned. And so what is the gospel matters. Colossians 2 let me read uh, Colossians 2 starting at verse 11 it says in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of
1: Christ buried
0: with him in baptism in which you also were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead so, in baptism, as we're immersed in the water, we're identifying with the sufferings of Christ, the death of Christ. And we're, again, when we're coming out of the water, we're identifying with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death, no matter how the world may try to make it okay and Everything's nice, and it's just passing to the other side. It, death is tragic. It's the result of sin. It's not good. And yet, death is something that God turns for good in that. And so when it comes to like the flesh, our own self-centeredness, self-will, um, there's nothing we can do to make it better. There's no techniques that we can try to make the flesh better, uh, no psychological techniques, no mystical techniques to make the flesh better. No, the death, the, the, the flesh must die. And, and we, we must die to ourselves and be born again by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. And similarly, when it comes to the world system, There's nothing that humans can do to perfect the world system through education or programs or grand leaders. Uh, There's nothing that can be done to create heaven on earth through our efforts. The world system must be judged and destroyed and God will destroy it and create a new heaven and new earth. And so here's that principle of Jesus said that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It won't bear any fruit. And in, he was speaking of his death and resurrection, and yet that principle is there where we identify with the death of Jesus, the sufferings of Christ. Look at verse 22 of 1 Peter 3. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So after the resurrection, we talked about it this morning, Jesus showed himself to over 500 people over 40 days, and and then he ascended into heaven. And his ascension into heaven to the right hand of the Father may be literally true, and I believe it's literally true, but it also demonstrates and is a figure of and and, and shows us triumph. That Jesus at the right hand of the Father is representing the triumph over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Over death itself. And Peter is writing this, including verse 22, to the Pilgrims of the dispersion in Asia Minor to encourage them, those who are being persecuted. And that's where Jesus is now. And one commentator said, why then do we not come to him with confidence and expect the utmost salvation? So Jesus hears the cries of people trusting in him. Jesus hears those who are being persecuted for his sake, those in seemingly hopeless situations, like the thief on the cross, the one that trusted in Jesus. The thief put his trust in Jesus, and Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Our lives are not insignificant to the Lord. So Jesus hears our cries. And we can be encouraged that even though the world system right now is being overseen and ruled by evil human rulers, and they have their 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 have their plans and their purposes and their agendas, and even though they're being inspired by demons, some of them know it, some of them don't know it, but the human rulers are being inspired by Satan and his demons who have their purposes and their plans. In spite of all of that, God is sovereign over all. And God is working his purposes in the midst of all these things, ultimately for our good and his glory. So he's going to turn these evil intentions, in spite of themselves, for our good. In His glory, and so this is why Stephen, right before he was uh, stoned to death in Acts seven, this is why Stephen could say, you know, Acts seven says about Stephen, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, "Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God." You can also look in Revelation 1 and see what John wrote about the revelation, the vision given to him. And Jesus is coming back again. So we've been considering in in studying 1 Peter, we've been considering what Peter wrote to the pilgrims of the dispersion, the sojourners, the aliens, the strangers in a strange land, uh, of the diaspora in Asia Minor who were undergoing suffering and oppression of the Roman Empire. Peter uh, was to be martyred soon after First and Second Peter the epistles were written. And like we've said before, it's likely Paul was already martyred or soon after. And Today, we live in the remnants of the Roman Empire. We live basically in a civilization that's the extension of the Roman Empire. And increasingly, this world system is hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're also going to see increasingly professing Christians who are collaborators with this religious system. We're called to be a faithful remnant, not just those gathered here, but sprinkled out in all the world. They're believers in Jesus, and we're called to be that faithful remnant, and we're not to be upset by persecution for doing good. We're not to think of ourselves as deserving better treatment than our Lord Jesus received. We saw earlier in 1 Peter... Chapter 1, verse 11, it says, speaking of the Old Testament prophets, it says, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicated, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Jesus died on the cross, but he was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And this coming in day, for those who have identified with the death of Jesus, we will be resurrected to an eternal love relationship with God, the sufferings of Christ, and the glories that would follow. So weekly, in in this assembly, we remember Jesus' death with the Lord's table. Today is a day that society and many Christians remember the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus ascended into heaven, and the angels told us that the same Jesus is going to return in like manner to what you've seen. So we are called to be a witness and like Noah, in a sense, to build an ark to save our family. So we're we're called to be so devoted to our life with Jesus, it's like as if we're building an ark in front of everybody that they can see that we're devoted to Jesus So we want to be that witness and we want to tell people judgment is coming. Get on board the ark. And the ark is not made out of wood this time. The ark is a person. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I want to close with three verses that we can be encouraged, that we can comfort one another no matter what is happening in our lives or what's going to happen. Uh, I want to read for you Romans 8, starting in verse 17. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 17 For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And next week we'll be reading in chapter 4 and we'll be dwelling and considering the verses along with this 4 chapter 1 where it says Therefore, and this is 1 Peter 3 chapter 4 verse 1 Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh arm yourselves also with the same mind for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you love us. Lord, help us to live for you. Help us, Lord, to identify, <coughs> excuse me, Lord, help us to identify with your suffering, your death on the cross. Lord, I pray you'll help us to fix our eyes on you and the eternal purposes that you have, an eternal love relationship with you that we can be resurrected to new life. And I thank you for every person here, Lord, and I pray. That you would bless every gathering of families and friends, and that your spirit would rule and you would bring eternal fruit from our gathering together this morning and throughout the day, Lord. Thank you in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Why
1: don't we stand and give Jim? Jim's got double duty today. He's not only a preacher but projector manager. I know that my Redeemer lives. and ready to return on the day the Father has set. Lord, you also dwell amongst your people. And Lord, we pray that you help us to serve one another, to look to you, and to love you. And Lord, to appreciate your resurrection from the dead, knowing that Sunday, as you told the followers of your day, when you were here on earth, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live, even though he died. Thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May the Lord bless your Resurrection Sunday, and we'll see you next week. Uh, Pending a rapture or a (laughs) resurrection.